ETF Prime is hosted by Nature Racing, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. And now a word from iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest. iShares sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week will be Matt Hogan, Chief Investment Officer at Bitwise Asset Management. The topic will be crypto and crypto ETFs. Uh, is there anything at all going on in crypto right now? That's not making any uh, headlines, is it? Well, I'll certainly be getting Matt's take on this entire FTX debacle, including what it means for the mainstream adoption of crypto, uh, what it means for crypto regulation, and yes, what it means for a spot Bitcoin ETF. I can't wait to hear Matt's take on uh, all of this. And then we'll also spend a few minutes looking at two Bitwise uh, ETFs, including one they just launched in October. It's a Web3 ETF. So it should be very entertaining and uh, an insightful conversation with Matt, as it always is. Now, also joining me this week will be Troy Cates, co-founder and managing partner of Neos Investments, who back in August, they launched uh, an initial suite of what they're calling Next Evolution Income ETFs. These are three ETFs offering exposure to the S&P 500, the Bloomberg Aggregate Bond Index, and short-term U.S. Treasuries. And what they're doing is they're using option strategies in an attempt to generate additional income on top of the underlying exposure offered by each of these. So I'll have uh, Troy walk us through exactly how they're doing that and also just discuss the proliferation of options-based ETFs. That's a uh, fast-growing segment of the ETF market overall. Now, to start this week, I have on the line with me Todd Rosenbluth, head of research at Vetify, you are going to get to find out what Todd is thankful for this week besides the uh, upcoming Michigan-Ohio State game. So let's chat with Todd now. 
Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. 800 billion, I think we have to say that again, 800 billion dollars and counting for an industry that is, is still growing in size is impressive. Todd, bold prediction right off the bat. Michigan or Ohio State? Who wins? And, and I'll tell you, I'm showing the early line is currently Ohio State favored by eight and a half points. So uh, what say you? Well, first of all, it's in, it's at Ohio State. So let's get that out of the way. So it's a road game for Michigan. I My heart tells me that Michigan is going to win. My head tells me that I need to follow my heart, that Michigan is going to win. It will make my life easier. It'll make my family life easier. I, I, I bleed maize and blue, as people probably know. So big weekend after a wonderful Thanksgiving for, for everybody that's listening. You guys uh, beat Ohio State last year and then went on to the college football playoffs, correct? That is correct. Yeah. So hopefully they can do it two in a row. Uh, prior to last year, they, there was a bit of a the pendulum swung against Michigan. It's now swung back towards Michigan. Hopefully it stays a, another year, if not longer. Well, should be a fun game for everybody to watch. Any big plans for Thanksgiving this week? I'll be with some family in Long Island. I, I live in New York City, as people may know, uh, so we'll take the train out to Long Island. Uh, we typically do on Wednesdays. They blow up the balloons uh, near my apartment, uh, near Central Park, uh, for the Macy's Parade, and that's we've been doing that with my son since he was one years old. We have a photo that we take with me holding my son for the last, he's now 12, so more than a decade. He's too heavy, I think, for me to hold uh, for very long, but we'll try to get that uh, in for one last time. The, a 12-year-old probably has less interest in spending time with his, his parents the day before Thanksgiving. Certainly a 13-year-old definitely does. Well, nevertheless, I would imagine uh, Thanksgiving in New York uh, sounds wonderful to me. A gr- great place to be. Um, so, okay, on the note right. of Thanksgiving. Wait, I have to ask you. You, 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 have, you do like a barbecue of like a traducan or something uh, pretty, pretty cool, if my, if my memory is correct. Yes? So I will be smoking a, a full bird, probably, you know, 22 to 24 pounds. It's uh, become an annual tradition. So, uh, so yes, I'll be doing that. Not, it's not a turducken. It's just a traditional turkey. But I've gotten pretty good uh, at, at smoking those things. So I'll, I'll do that. I'll, I'll certainly watch some football, some college basketball. And honestly, Todd, I think just relax a little bit. I, I, I know everybody says this, but it's just been an extremely busy last few months. So I'm just hoping to downshift a little bit. Here's hoping you do. Um, okay. So on the note of Thanksgiving, you published a fun piece yesterday Uh, This was titled Thankful Times in the ETF Industry, and you highlighted several ETF items that uh, we all should be thankful for this year, despite a very difficult market environment. And I want to go through these because I thought you did a really nice job of actually capturing some of the year's biggest ETF stories. And so what I thought I would do, let me tee each of these up and then you, you can offer some color here and we can bat these around a little bit. Now, the, uh, the first item you noted is that ETFs have already gathered over $500 billion in assets this year. So uh, I'll just ask you, what are you thankful about here besides the fact that this is uh, very good for both of our careers? Right. So we've long heard and people say that, that volatility in bear markets is a good thing for the ETF industry. But a lot of that history was in 2008, when there was far fewer people who were investing in 
ETFs. It's uh, you know a six trillion dollar ETF market. It seems harder that the adoption can continue, but money keeps moving from mutual funds to ETFs. So let's break that down: the equity and the fixed income portion. Money has consistently been moving out of equity mutual funds year after year, and then into ETFs. I'm using ICI data, and that's happening again in 2022. Uh, through mid-November, $335 billion flowed out of equity mutual funds, and $365 billion flowed into equity ETFs. Not exactly a one-for-one. One. Some of that money is moving to something else, probably, but that's a great sign. But it's the fixed income market that I know we've talked about on this podcast, and you've talked about with others where money continues to move in 2022 for the first time really ever out of fixed income mutual funds, $475 billion has been pulled out of it. This is the worst bond year bond uh, year for the Barclays Ag, I think, in history, and certainly in, in my investment lifetime, perhaps yours as well. And $165 billion has flowed into fixed income ETF. So I'm thankful that in advisors and investors are continuing to gravitate towards ETFs. They're not trying to time the market. They're actually continuing to allocate to some of the building block products like the iShares Core S&P 500 ETF and Vanguard Total Stock Market ETF, but that they're finding new choices within the fixed income marketplace, either ultra safe products like the treasury products like SHY from iShares and BIL, from State Street, but also they're using the wide array of tools that are at their disposal that they didn't have beforehand. Yeah, and I think to your point, Todd, um, look, on the equity side, not a huge surprise. We've seen this movie before when there's uh, turbulence in the markets. That tends to bode well for ETFs overall. We've seen that like clockwork following the global financial crisis. We saw it in 2018 when the Fed tried hiking rates. We saw it again following the COVID crash. So that's not necessarily surprising. It's the fixed income side, which is just eye-opening to see those flows out of uh, bond mutual funds and and into bond ETFs. And I know, to your point, it's not one-to-one, but uh, that's just that's shocking to see. Um, but, you know, my take on this just overall, you, you look at the flows this year that over 500 billion, it will end up being the second best year ever behind last year. And I, I, I look even here recently. So you may have seen Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas uh, tweeted this out on Friday. He said ETFs took in 113 billion over the past four weeks with 42 billion coming in the past week. And he said clearly investors were ready to get bullish and support a rally. And I replied to that. I was just looking at some data. $235 billion has come into ETFs just over the past 90 days. So, so think about that. I mean, if you extrapolate that out, and I, I know you can't always do that, I mean, you're talking about a nearly $1 trillion pace if you, if you move that forward. And I'll tell you now, this may or may not be one of my uh, five predictions for 2023. I think, you know, every year I put together five predictions for 2023. But I do think we're going to see over a trillion dollars in inflows next year, assuming the markets just don't absolutely crater. And, you know, I think after this year, nobody has a crystal ball. Who knows what's going to happen? But, uh, you know, as long as we don't see a repeat of this year or worse, I think that ETFs are going to eclipse that one trillion dollar mark. So, yeah, I, I think no question. This is a big ETF story. Yeah, I, I second that trillion dollar 
expectation for 2023. You came in, or I got teased on with the 800 billion and counting comment that I made uh, in late 2021. 500 billion and counting during the middle of a equity bear market, a fixed income bear market with a potential recession on the horizon is just tremendous. It just shows that in a normal time, assuming we can think of what a normal time in the equity and fixed income market is, we've got a lot of headroom ahead for the ETF industry. Um, Okay, so the second item that you uh, noted you're thankful for is that more well-established asset managers have embraced ETFs. And this is something, again, I know you and I have discussed at least a few times this year, this uh, parade of big names entering the ETF space. But just give us a little more color here. Why did this stand out to you? Yeah. So in my former life, at before I joined Vetify, I was the head of mutual fund and ETF research. And we had this group of traditional ETF providers. We had this traditional group of traditional mutual fund providers and a few firms with some overlap. You know, Invesco, for example, JP Morgan entering the ETF market was a, a Goldman Sachs and Tiro Price. Those were starting signs of ETF adoption by traditional asset managers. That's really happened in 2022. So Capital Group, the firm behind American Funds, launched its first nine ETFs in 2022, starting in February. They're approaching $5 billion already uh, in in a very short amount of time. The Capital Group Dividend Value ETF has already gathered a billion dollars. We've had firms like Alliance Bernstein and DoubleLine and Matthews Asia roll out products in in the piece that you referenced earlier on ETF trends, I, I cited some of those. So year is the Alliance Bernstein ultra short income ETF, um, fixed income product, uh, Matthews Asia innovation ETF, MINV. Uh, those are just two of the products from firms that you think of within the active world entering into the ETF market. So there's some folks in the ETF space that are committed to index investing There are some folks that have long been committed to active management, and they've primarily stayed within the mutual fund world because there just weren't a whole lot of choices for them. Now, as an advisor, you can truly choose whether or not you want an ETF or a mutual fund from some of your favorite active management firms. So I'm thankful for that. There's more smart people in the space. Yeah, and we think we're going to cap the year here with another huge name in Morgan Stanley, right? Is the expectation still that those products will launch here in the next few weeks? Yes, uh, that's my expectation. They updated the filing this week, I believe, with tickers, not expense ratios. So that's usually the last thing that comes in. But uh, an updated filing with tickers shows we're, we're moving forward with these ESG products from Morgan Stanley. So, yeah, they that's the largest next player. I think we, we did a, a prior podcast trying to forecast who's next. So people should listen to that one. But, yeah, Morgan Stanley's coming likely in December. Uh, If not, I guess it could fall into January, early January. Okay, so on the other end of the spectrum from these uh, big brand names, the third item that you're thankful for, which I really like this one, Todd, is that advisors have been willing to try working with lesser known ETF issuers. And I think, you know, I've always said that uh, smaller upstart issuers, that in my mind is where the innovation occurs, right? They're the, uh, the incubators in the ETF space. So I, I'm just curious on this one, was there a certain product or products that stood out to you this year? What made you flag this one? 
Yeah, so I think if we were trying to think of what is the surprise ETF for 2022, the Managed Futures ETF DBMF uh, from the firm IMGP DBI, that's a mouthful to be able to say, but the ETF ticker is DBMF, uh, is perhaps the, the example of a small ETF can have success if it's if it fits the right niche and a managed futures ETF that's performing well in this environment where equity and fixed income is out of favor. This ETF has gathered a billion dollars alone in 2022. That's probably not a big deal if you're BlackRock or Vanguard or even State Street for one of your ETFs. But the ETF now has $1.1 billion in assets. So it went from almost nothing and gathered a billion dollars in 2022. So I wanted to call that one out. It, it uh, reminded me of an ETF that came out in 2021 from Horizon Kinetics uh, because they they have filed to launch a, another ETF coming out, but their existing product, INFL, which is Inflation Beneficiary ETF, launched in 2021. It already has a billion for in assets, in, in energy, materials, financial stocks. I think, you know, uh, I'm a big believer that age doesn't matter in the ETF space. A good ETF is a good ETF, regardless if it's three years old or not. And so it just excites me that advisors are and investors are adopting some of these products early in their life cycle. And so I, I'm, I'm thankful for these firms to put their products out there and to see advisors uh, have a chance to, to adopt them early without having all the gatekeepers stop them. No, I completely agree, Todd. And, you know, again, this is really where the true entrepreneurs in the ETF space are. And it does take bravery. It's a tough uh, market. Again, the, the, the terror dome. So to launch a new product and stand by it and, uh, you know, I don't know that hope's the right word, but, you know, hope that it has success. That's a tough thing to do. And I had uh, Andrew Bear on uh, earlier in the year who's behind DBMF. And it was just, I, I love talking to him because you could feel the energy that if, he was so happy that finally people were seeing the value behind something that, you know, he put his blood, sweat and tears into. And I, I actually think DBMF is probably the ETF of the year. We'll, we'll, we'll figure that over the next month or so. But uh, no, I love that. Something else that I'll throw out is that, and I know you noted this in the, uh, the article, the big three, so Vanguard, iShare, State Street, they control about 80% of the market, but that hasn't stopped new entrants. And I'll tell you that uh, I put together periodically a pie chart of the uh, ETF market share percentage in that there's a little sliver for other, right? So may, I may list like the 10 or 15 largest ETF issuers, but over the past few years, if you look, that little sliver of other has slowly grown. And, uh, and, and you love to see that. So, um, okay, I, I want to get to a survey uh, that uh, Vetify ran, but I do want to just ask you, Todd, on more of a personal note. I know you said that you were thankful to have joined uh, the firm that became Vetify in 2022. So this has been an eventful year for you professionally uh, in a good way, right? But certainly a lot of change. Would you like to uh, briefly comment on that? Sure. Well, thanks for the opportunity to do so. Uh, you know, I, I spent 20 years at CFRA or the S&P group uh, that was moved into CFRA doing stock and ETF and mutual fund research. So I hadn't been bouncing around and nothing against people who do that within their career. So this was a big move for me to join what became Vetify. I, I'm really happy. I'm working with smart people across various verticals, webcasts, marketing, 
research, uh, the sales team, a lot of folks that are behind the scenes from a, a back office capabilities. I'm really excited and thankful to be there. And we're also, as, as I know you and the listeners know, because you're helping us raise awareness about it, the Exchange ETF conference in 2023 is something that we're building towards. And I'm thankful to be part of the team that's helping put together that agenda. So I'm, I'm excited about that, but thankful for what's ahead and thankful to be able to talk about great data with you. No, 100%. And I'll, I'll just add to that, that for my perch, it's been really fun to watch everything at Vetify this year. It's been uh, amazing to see uh, just everything come together with a brand, to see the quality of content that is now being uh, published and talked about on a daily basis. It's uh, It's been a lot of fun to watch, Todd. So very happy for you. Okay. Thank you. With our remaining time, let's switch gears. And I, I, I want to cover just a couple other ETF topics that caught my attention recently. And this first one uh, is this piece that you wrote last week where uh, you, you noted advisors are seeking downside protection. And again, obviously, it's been a very difficult year in the markets. And so Vetify surveyed advisors on what their uh, biggest goal for clients was over the next six months. Do you want to just briefly walk us through the results of that? And then maybe we can uh, talk about a few ETF takeaways as well. Sure. So this is something we regularly are talking with advisors through our webcast program and, and ask them questions unrelated to the specific ETFs that are talked about. So it, it, it's fodder for a research guy like myself. And the majority, 56%, chose the answer to quote, mitigate their exposure to market volatility and downside risk. So that was a, a defensive approach to it. That was higher than the bolster portfolios against recession or a more offensive approach to tax loss harvest uh, for clients. And so I decided to spin that into here's some options if you are wanting to play some defense, but still be part of the equity marketplace. And that went with some of the obvious choices, perhaps, of lower volatility ETFs. So the iShares, MSCI, USA MinVol Factor ETF, USMV, and the Invesco S&P 500 low volatility ETF, SPLV. And we talked about the differences between those products that I won't belabor on here, but those are products that have been gaining traction. They've been around for years. Uh, but I also, I know you're actually talking with, uh, with somebody tied to covered call strategies. Uh, later on in this program. And this has been a year for covered call strategies. So JEPI, the JP Morgan Equity Premium Income ETF, and the Global X S&P 500 Covered Call ETF XYLD are two uh, very popular products in 2022. They haven't been around a long time, uh, but very popular, give you the equity exposure, but that income component through covered call strategies and they've held up better. And then lastly, walk through some of those defined outcome uh, buffer ETFs from Innovator and Allianz. So three different ways, not the only ways, but three different ways to play defense and to reduce the downside risk of a portfolio that advisors told us they were most interested in. Yeah. And I'll just add to that, Todd, I, I ran some performance data this morning. And what's Nice to see is that these have all worked in this environment. So you look this year, SPY, the S&P 500, is down about 16%. USMV is down 8%. Uh, SPLV, only down about 5%. You look at JEPI, uh, only down 3%. 
And something else I'll note about uh, Jeppe, you look at that, Todd, I mean, almost $11 billion has gone into that product this year. That's in the top 10 of all ETFs in terms of inflow. So it shows you advisors are looking for some, uh, some risk mitigation strategies. The other thing that I'll note here is on the uh, defined outcome ETFs, the, uh, the buffer ETFs. You look at somebody like Innovator, who's the largest player in the space, that, that firm is now over $10 billion in assets. They've only been around for about four years. So again, I just think another good example of uh, the fact that advisors and investors are looking for ways to mitigate their exposure to, uh, to market volatility and, and downside risk. So no, I, I like that survey. You know I love getting real-time data from advisors on what they're actually doing uh, in portfolios. So love that. Okay, I think as you know, I have uh, Bitwise's Matt Hogan on deck here to talk crypto and crypto ETFs. So before I let you go, I have to ask you about a, uh, a spot Bitcoin ETF. Don't, uh, don't strangle me. And I would say, <laughs> Todd, I feel like you have been uh, bearish on the prospects for a spot Bitcoin ETF for a long time now. That's not new. And I'm just curious, as you've watched this uh, entire debacle unfold with FTX and really some of the other very negative headlines we've seen across the crypto space this year, are you even more bearish now on the prospects for a spot Bitcoin ETF, or has anything at all changed around your your thinking here? Well, I, I think I mean Matt Hogan's closer to this than I am, so I, because he's been proposing to have one at his, you know from from his firm Bitwise, so he'll have more inside baseball. Maybe he won't give it all to you and the audience on it. My my bearishness, if that's the right choice of words skepticism that a product would come to market largely comes from the SEC's own statements that they've said they're concerned about fraud and manipulation. I'm paraphrasing. Um, and we certainly have seen evidence of potential fraud and manipulation taking place within the crypto marketplace. So it's hard to it's hard for me to believe that the SEC is going to see this and say, yes, we now need to allow something that we were concerned about just so people can do it within the ETF space instead of doing uh, doing it outside of the ETF space. So I think, you know, I was skeptical that we'd have a futures-based product. I was wrong on that one. So I, of course, give myself the out that I may be wrong, but I don't think we're going to see a spot Bitcoin ETF in, in 2023. I'll, I'll go with that statement. I'm not sure we'll see one so soon after that, but I'll go with 2023. Uh, I'll, I'll put my marker down. We will not have a spot Bitcoin ETF uh, in the United States. I, I love it. You heard it here first from Todd. Here's the only, if I'm looking for a silver lining, I'll just say that clearly the FTX situation um, would speak to the, the, the need for better or, or greater regulation around crypto exchanges, which we know SEC Chair Gary Gensler has said is a prerequisite for a spot Bitcoin ETF. And so if this entire situation helps accelerate the, uh, the, the regulation of crypto exchanges, then I would say theoretically that may accelerate the timeline for a spot Bitcoin ETF. But I, I hear what you're saying. It's so funny because I think if you go back, you know, I've been doing this podcast for, what, 12 years now. I bet in 10 of those <laughs> I predicted a, a spot Bitcoin ETF. So, so maybe this will be the year. Uh, I, I don't do that, uh, so I don't have to, uh, you know, eat a dollar bill or whatever. But, uh, Todd, great stuff as always. I hope you and your family enjoyed the Thanksgiving uh, holiday. Thank you for joining me this week. 
Thanks, Nate. Appreciate it. Hope everybody signs up for exchange uh, and gets the savings while they can. That was Todd Rosenbluth, head of research at Vetify. ETF investing never stops evolving. And thankfully for investors, it's gone far beyond passively tracking index returns. John Hancock Investment Management's active fixed income ETFs are backed by deep research from Manulife Investment Management and have the flexibility to navigate today's shifting market environment. Find out how our active fixed income ETFs can help you prepare for whatever lies ahead. Learn more at jhinvestments.com ETF. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal. You can find a prospectus at jhinvestments.com. The prospectus includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should carefully consider before investing. John Hancock's fixed income ETFs are distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC in the United States and are sub-advised by Manulife Investment Management US LLC. Foresight is not affiliated with John Hancock Investment Management Distributors LLC or Manulife Investment Management US LLC. I'm now joined by Matt Hogan, Chief Investment Officer at Bitwise Asset Management, who is one of the world's leading and fastest growing crypto asset managers. And on the ETF side, they currently offer two ETFs, the Bitwise Crypto Industry Innovators ETF, ticker BITQ, and then the recently launched Bitwise Web3 ETF, ticker BWEB, B-W-E-B, that just rolled out at the beginning of October. And then, of course, Bitwise has also helped spearhead the efforts around bringing a spot Bitcoin ETF to market, though still no spot Bitcoin ETF, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Matt is uh, on the line with me from San Francisco. Matt, thanks for joining me this week. Uh, thanks for having me back. I'm excited to be here. You know, it's funny. I was looking back. You actually joined me in October of last year, which was about a week after the first Bitcoin futures ETF launch. That now seems like uh, an eternity ago. Ha has anything at all happened in crypto <laughs> since then? <laughs> One or two things. Wow, what a year. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's been a difficult year uh, for the crypto market since we met in October. You know, crypto had one month running up into November. And then we had the Federal Reserve shift from quantitative easing to quantitative tightening. That drove crypto markets down. And since then, we've had this cascading credit crisis in crypto that's now claimed multiple victims from Three Arrows Capital, a crypto hedge fund, to lenders like Celsius, to, of course, FTX, which was exposed as a fraud. And crypto prices are down, you know, 70, 75 percent from their all-time highs. So it, it has been a momentous year, Nate. Matt, when you look at FTX, which is obviously in the headlines right now, and then some of the other events that you mentioned, Three Arrows Capital, you can look at Terra Luna, there's been a never-ending parade of really bad headlines in crypto. And then to your point, if you look at what I would consider the bedrocks or uh, the foundation of crypto, Bitcoin and, and, and Ether, those are both down around 70% over the, uh, the past year. 
And so even if you want to say, well, you know, centralized solutions built around crypto have had a tough time, something like FTX, the two major crypto assets are also getting hammered as well. So it's just been tough across the board. But if we look at the what I'll call the centralized solutions, I'm curious how much damage you think has been done to crypto perception wise. And let me just color that by saying I do feel like it was an uphill battle even prior to these recent events to get uh, institutional investors and uh, financial advisors to really buy in. I, I feel like there's just been so much skepticism of crypto. And now, d- depending upon how you want to look at things, that skepticism seems somewhat justified, right? The, the, the perception has been reinforced. So h- how much longer term damage has been done here from a mainstream adoption standpoint? Yeah, I, I think you've probably set the crypto market back six to 12 months. I don't think it's more than that. We've had these kind of cycles in the past. This actually isn't the worst pullback in crypto's history. It fell 84% between 2017 and 2018 before moving on to a 13x bull market from there. So we've, we've seen these sorts of events. I think what the market has learned is that there are two things that work in crypto. Highly regulated, uh, often U.S.-based entities publicly traded companies like Coinbase that deserve investors' trust have held up extremely well. DeFi protocols like Uniswap and Aave, which are completely decentralized and don't rely on centralized trust, have held up extremely well. And centralized institutions that are located in unregulated offshore markets, the sort of messy middle of crypto, those can't be trusted in an asset with a you know, 100 ball uh, and, and relatively high levels of leverage. I don't think it's a fundamental setback to crypto because when you peel past things like the criminal fraud at FTX or the collapse of these uh, these unregulated crypto lenders, and you look at the fundamentals of crypto, they're actually relatively strong. You know, there, there are more developers working in the crypto ecosystem today than at any time in the past. There's more venture capital money moving through crypto today than at any time in the past. There are more applications, you know, monthly active users are up. Total wallet addresses are up. So some of the fundamentals are really strong. But for sure, to your point, this is going to set back the industry at least six to 12 months as investors sit on the sidelines wondering if there'll be new shoes to drop and running sort of what entities they really can trust in this environment. Matt, on that note, you know, what entities you can trust? And you mentioned regulation. I'm curious from a regulatory standpoint how you're viewing the world right now. And I'll I'll tee this one up for you with a cliche take that on one hand, uh, you could obviously make the argument that everything we're seeing with FTX and and, and this other stuff shows that we do need more regulation and more regulatory clarity overall. But on the other hand, wasn't the entire point of crypto to be outside the purview of centralized authorities, right? Be permissionless. (laughs) And so I'm just curious maybe how you reconcile those two things and and just how you think about crypto regulation overall right now. Yeah, again, uh, absolutely. When you look at really decentralized protocols, lending protocols like Aave that are decentralized apps or trading venues like Uniswap, they've worked perfectly. There have been no meaningful losses from uh, decentralized lending activity, which is incredible considering the carnage in the market and the way we've seen centralized lenders fail. So I actually think, you know, one point you're, that you're making is that one failure in crypto in this cycle is that it wasn't crypto enough. And I think the facts on the ground prove that. And I think that's one of the reasons why once we get past this bear market, 
you're going to see a resurgence in DeFi activity. And we're already seeing sort of some signs of that. Um, but I, I do think the other side is true. We're going to get uh, increased regulatory action, increased regulatory uh, activity, and it's going to happen faster than it would have without the events of the past six months. Uh, you're going to see congressional hearings. I think all of that is going to be a net good. I think it's going to lay the foundation for the next bull market of crypto. I think it's going to be what finally gets us not just to a Bitcoin ETF, but to ETFs on multiple crypto assets. But uh, but there is some risk in it as well. You know, anytime regulators act quickly, they can act poorly. And I think some in the crypto industry, while we generally welcome more regulatory clarity, worry about regulatory clarity delivered with haste because there's a risk of overreach. And, and that's something to watch in the next six months. By, by the way, and I want to move on here in a minute, but on the uh, whole FTX debacle, I do want to mention that your Bitwise 10 crypto index fund, ticker BITW, as far as I understand, that never owned FTX's token FTT. And, and I was just curious, do you want to comment on that? Because I think that speaks to the way that Bitwise views the, the crypto world overall. Do I, do I have that correct? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Thank you for that. Even though FTT became one of the largest tokens in the world and would have qualified from a naive market cap standpoint, it never entered our index. You know, our index has been around for five years. We have a series of robust screens that screen out assets with hidden risks. And FTX tripped up or FTT tripped up on, on multiple of those screens, including our analysis that it was at risk of being found an unregistered securities offering. It's not the first time we've managed to avoid a blow up either, Nate. We also uh, didn't include Luna, uh, the stable coin that collapsed, even though at one point it was the fourth largest crypto asset in the world, uh, because we recognize the sort of failures of its token economic design. I do think crypto is like a frontier or emerging market. And as much as I love plain vanilla indexing, you have to build risk screens into your index funds if you want to stand the test of time. So we were happy to be on the sidelines for FTT, just like uh, Luna before it. Matt, sort of on this note, when we start heading down the path of just the investment thesis underpinning crypto, and I know we could talk about this for hours, so trying to get this into a few minutes is difficult, but let's maybe take uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum. What are some legitimate use cases here? Like, like why own these? Because with everything that's gone on, to, to my earlier point, I think some people are saying, well, see, I told you, you know, this entire crypto space is a scam. It's one big Ponzi scheme, right? The whole idea here was uh, prices go up, but there's no underlying investment thesis. So j just briefly, give us some legitimate use cases for crypto. Yeah, I think those arguments are mostly about Bitcoin. And look, to some extent, I agree with them. I think the Bitcoin's role in the world is as digital gold. And just like gold doesn't do much except for sit around and gather dust, but protects you from fiat inflation, I think that's the exact same role that Bitcoin's going to play. The reason people invest in it is if it's successful with that, if it becomes a fair competitor with gold, it'll be valued at hundreds of thousands or north of a million dollars per coin. So people are making an asymmetric bet. It's not a, a tool we're going to use to buy coffee. Ethereum is something entirely different. Ethereum is like the app store for decentralized applications. It's this global compute platform. It has real revenues, right? It's doing 80, 90, $100 million in revenue per month. You can value it on an ARR basis. And the bet you're making with Ethereum is that blockchain is an important compute platform. And the next generation of applications are going to be built on that platform. 
rather than being built on things like iOS. And all the indicators there are really positive. Again, the number of developer installs of Ethereum's core app building tools 3x in the past year, despite the bear market. So there's a huge rush of engineers building on this blockchain compute platform, and Ethereum is a way to invest in that. It has real revenues, it has real profits, it has real users. Um, you know, those, those are the ways I think of it. If you look at crypto, not over a four-month period, but over a four-year period, it's a vastly stronger industry than it was you know, at this point in the last cycle. And I think people who are investing in it today expect four years from now, even if we're in another bear market at that point, uh, you know, the industry will be 10x bigger at that point than it is right now. Okay, so that's a perfect segue here because I want to talk about your two ETFs. Obviously, investors right now can't get uh, direct exposure to something like Bitcoin or or Ether. There are futures-based Bitcoin products. But um, what we have seen is a uh, proliferation of what I'll call blockchain or crypto-related ETFs. So Bitwise offers the Crypto Industry Innovators ETF, ticker BITQ, in the, uh, the, the Bitwise Web3 ETF, BWeb, which, again, that just launched in early October. So BITQ, that holds companies like uh, Coinbase, MicroStrategy, there are crypto miners like Hive and, and Riot. And then BWeb holds over 30 companies that uh, are believed to be well-positioned from the adoption and growth of Web3. I'd love to have you just give us a quick snapshot on both of those. Absolutely. Yeah, BitQ, we're really proud of. It was the first ETF the SEC let use crypto in the name because it offers pure play exposure to the picks and shovels that underpin the crypto economy. So if you can't buy crypto directly or don't want to, you can buy these companies like Coinbase and Riot and Marathon uh, that build the infrastructure on which crypto sits. And actually, right now, those companies are trading at extremely compressed valuations. The bear market has hit them hard. I know Coinbase is trading at an all-time low. And so that's an interesting way to get exposure to crypto with earnings, profits, uh, dividends, things that look familiar to most investors in an ETF package. Where BWeb sits is, you know, look, our view is that blockchain and public blockchains are this massive new compute paradigm and uh, that the Internet is going to enter this third generation of development. It's not our view solely. Many of the largest crypto VCs and VCs in Silicon Valley believe this. And there's some tech companies that are positioning for that Web3 future and some companies that aren't. And so what BWeb does is it holds the companies that are recognizing where the puck is going recognizing that blockchain is a compute platform on par with cloud, on par with mobile, on par with social, and are building to take advantage of those opportunities. So these are innovative financial and tech leaders, uh, and they get wrapped up in that ETF. Matt, one question I I have here on this space. So I mentioned uh, the proliferation of blockchain or crypto-related ETFs, and I I know you've seen some of my recent commentary in the media where I've been uh, somewhat critical of, of this space overall. And my take here is pretty simplistic, which is that to me, it just seems like there are way too many products on the market. I, I feel like since the SEC won't approve spot products, ETF issuers view blockchain ETFs as the next best thing, which which is fine. But there are a lot of products out there right now. And if you look under the hood of a lot of these, they look pretty similar. And so I, I do think from, you know, I'll speak from an advisor standpoint, it can be difficult 
to differentiate among these. And there, there are just so many products out there. Do you have any thoughts on what I'll call the oversaturation of this ETF category? Uh, yeah, I think the boom in crypto invited a lot of tourists into the market, and they'll probably leave with the bear market in crypto. I think when advisors are looking at products, they should look at the underlying holdings, of course, but they should also think about the companies that are behind them. Do they have the resources to sit with the advisor and answer the questions that their clients are going to have about crypto? You know, one thing we're really proud about at Bitwise we have a team of 25 people in the field. I think we're the only crypto asset manager with that kind of distribution team. And they exist because when you buy a crypto ETF or crypto exposure for a client, it's not just about the crypto exposure. It's about having answers when the client calls up and says, what's going on with FTX? Or what is the regulatory outlook? Or what are the real use cases? And I think you're going to see advisors and investors migrate to those products that are backed by experts and that are built for the long haul. But I do suspect we'll see some closures from some of the tourists that sort of dip their tone to the water because it was a hot name. Um, but some of the other ETFs, you know, aren't going anywhere. They'll see significant inflows. They'll be much bigger in the next cycle than they are today. That's really well said. I've actually uh, crudely referred to what you just described as street cred, crypto street cred. Do you want somebody yep. who's an expert in the space, who understands everything going on? Or, you know, your, your word tourist there is probably perfect. Somebody who just happened to, uh, to show up for a short period of time. I think that's a, an important consideration for any investor, because if you want to have and, and really, especially for advisors, if you want to have those underlying questions uh, answered that maybe your clients have, d does the firm that's offering the ETF have those resources and that expertise to, to be able to answer those questions. That's a, that's well said, Matt. Um, okay, we only have a couple of minutes left here. As always, let's close a, a little spot Bitcoin ETF talk. I, I know you uh, alluded to this earlier, but um, look, Grayscale is, uh, is proceeding with this lawsuit against the SEC to convert their Bitcoin trust into an ETF. Uh, we continue to see the SEC, you know, either deny uh, pr prospective uh, ETF issuers I saw they recently pushed out ARC-21 shares, uh, spot Bitcoin ETF. Do you just have any comments on whether it be the Grayscale lawsuit or, or just Bitwise's position on a spot Bitcoin ETF overall? Yeah, I think our look outlook for crypto ETFs is that this is one step backward to prepare for two steps forward. So I don't think you can look at what happened with FTX with the other collapses and say we're closer to a spot Bitcoin ETF today than we were a few months ago. That's just not how regulators work. It's not how humans work. We need to rebuild trust in crypto. So this is definitely a step back, and I don't suspect we'll see a spot Bitcoin ETF in the near term. What I do think is going to come out of the, the events of the last 6 to 12 months is increased regulatory clarity, uh, regulatory structures for spot crypto exchanges. And what that will mean, what that will open up, is not just a spot Bitcoin ETF, but I suspect spot Ethereum ETFs, uh, ETFs on other assets, ETFs on index funds. So I think this is one step back to prepare for two steps forward. I think we'll get multiple crypto ETFs once we get the spot markets regulated, and they're going to be a lot of people looking to do just that over the next six to 12 months. Well, Matt, always enjoy our uh, chats. I'm not sure anyone does a better job of bridging traditional finance and DeFi than you do, just with your knack for education. <laughs> I'm serious. So thank you for that. And uh, I hope you and your family enjoy the, uh, the Thanksgiving holiday. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody.
That was Matt Hogan, Chief Investment Officer at Bitwise Asset Management. Web3 is one of the world's fastest growing industries, and the SoFi Web3 ETF is designed to make it easier than ever for investors to put their dollars into the technology they're most excited about. The SoFi Web3 ETF is the first Web3 fund on the market, and it provides investors with access to the companies powering the next tech revolution and driving a decentralized approach to the internet, such as the metaverse and artificial intelligence. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus. A prospectus may be obtained by visiting SoFi Web3 ETF at www.sofi.com slash invest slash ETF slash TWeb. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk and the possible loss of principal. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. I'm now joined by Troy Cates, co-founder and managing partner of Neos Investments, who at the end of August, they launched their initial suite of what they're calling Next Evolution Income ETF. So these are three actively managed ETFs, which use option strategies for both risk management and obviously to generate income as well. And Troy is now on the line with me from Connecticut. Troy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Nate. All right. So it's interesting. You know, uh, options-based ETFs have been an area of pretty significant growth for the ETF market overall. And, you know, from my perspective, I look at this, I, I think it's been a combination of a shifting market environment. There have been some regulatory changes. And then just the fact that there was some white space here, right? There was some room for innovation and competition, which you can't always say in, in certain corners of the ETF market. So I think those three things have really helped propel this space. But I'm curious, from your perspective, what exactly did you see as the opportunity in options-based ETFs? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, it's been a, a different growth uh, trajectory for option-based ETFs than, than I think most ETFs. You know, we began uh, years ago with the passively managed ETFs um, that were tracking indexes built by whether it was uh, the CBOE or un other index providers. And it kind of took years for acceptance in the ETF space. Um, a lot of advisors were early adopters and, and understood the value add of having options in an ETF wrapper, but it was still a, a, a longer education process, I think, than, than explaining what an ETF was or, or how you could get exposure to different sectors. Um, a lot of people had a lot of questions about what was an option, what, why is an option in an ETF, and, and so forth. And so what did you see as the, the opportunity here? Why did you decide to get involved? So um, we got involved. So my team and I have, have been involved in the option-based um, ETF space for, for a number of years. Uh, one of my co-founding partners, Garrett Paolella, and I, uh, we've been working together for, for close to 15 years now. Um, and we, we were partnered in a business years ago that kind of pioneered the space in the option-based ETF um, arena. Uh, with some of the early passively managed, you know, index tracking option-based ETFs. Uh, we eventually sold that business in 2017 to a large foreign asset management firm uh, where we met our other co-founding partner, Tae Young Lee, 
but our core team's been working together for, for years um, in this option-based uh, space. So we had those early products, which were passively managed tracking indexes, um, and we eventually moved on to a little bit more of active, the, the active space uh, where we were sub-advising for a large insurance company. And uh, we just saw the space continuing to grow. A lot of other providers had come into the space, um, new providers, a lot of uh, the existing providers were expanding their suite, and we just wanted to bring out uh, what we thought was, was kind of the, the next evolution of, of uh, the option-based ETFs and, and income in the space. You mentioned the uh, longer education process in this space, which I agree with. And so I'm curious how you're approaching education, because my experience has been that a decent chunk of advisors and investors, they view options-based strategies as much more complex. And so I, I think because of that, they may stay away from this space altogether. Now, you know, earlier I gave those three catalysts that I view to growth, but I think this one is actually a, a, a potential hindrance. So how are you attempting to overcome that uh, knowledge and comfortability hurdle? Yeah, it's a really good question. So years ago, we used to get on with an advisor, and the education process uh, was more around how the creation redemption process works, what does secondary market spreads look like, um, what is the underlying liquidity. Now that the ETFs have been more widely adopted in general, we get on calls, and the education process is more around how do the option positions help you achieve a desired outcome, you know, how, when, and why do you roll your option positions how are they taxed? Um, I think advisors are really getting more in and digging in, getting more into the weeds so they can explain to their clients why they own a specific ETF. So our education process is just, it's a lot of reaching out. It's a lot of uh, you know, digital marketing. It's a lot of reaching out to advisors. It's a lot of uh, going to the different um, you know, events in the ETF space and sitting there and talking to advisors of why this might be helpful for them if they're looking for income or they're looking for an alternative to what they're already invested in. So that's, that's where it works best for us when we can get, you know, in front of an advisor or a group of advisors and, and kind of explain what we're doing in the space, why we do it this way and really dig in and, and they could have a good understanding because for them, they have to answer to their clients in the end of, of why they're invested in certain, you know, ETF vehicles or anything else. Um, and so the more we could do to educate them, the better. All right, so let's briefly walk through your uh, ETFs. Again, this initial suite of three active ETFs. And first up is the NEOS S&P 500 High Income ETF, ticker SPYI. Uh, do you want to explain this one? Sure. Um, so I'll just give you a little bit of uh, the nuts and bolts and how it's built. Um, we buy in full replication um, the S&P 500 index. So we own you know all 500-plus names that are in the S&P 500. We rebalance. We... we um, add, delete when they add, delete. So we're just tracking the index for the underlying equity beta of the portfolio. Then the option portfolios on top of that, on a monthly basis, we sell a laddered uh, covered calls on the S&P 500 index. Um, we, we use uh, you know, index options for the tax advantage and the, and the deep liquidity. But this is a, a systematic rules-based model that we follow. Um, and uh, it gives us the ability to sell calls on either up to 100% of the notional of the portfolio, or there are times when the model will say, pull back a little and don't sell on the entire notional of the portfolio, or possibly add a long call, which makes the, the covered calls into a call spread. So that's kind of uh, what our model looks like and, and how it works. And the goal is for, for us to, to have uh, 
a 10 to 12% annualized distribution yield. Um, we distribute monthly, and it's, it's an income product. Okay, so in addition to that income, if you were to boil this down, I'm, I'm just curious, what does the investor experience in this ETF look like compared to a, a plain vanilla S&P 500 ETF? So again, let's put the income aside because clearly that's a, a, a primary goal here. Just you know, up market, down market, what does the ride look like in this product versus a, a plain vanilla S&P 500 sure. ETF? So comparing this to a plain vanilla ETF, um, SPYI would have, would have a higher yield, obviously, on the income side. But you get the same ETF liquidity for people who want to come in and buy a large amount because they want to put it across a number of client accounts. You get the same liquidity as you would with the S&P 500 because the underlying basket is the same outside of the options. And the options are something that are traded on the S&P 500 index, which has very deep liquidity. Um, how does it work up and down markets? Um, on the upside, since our underlying beta is the same, but we have that uh, those covered calls, we might not participate as much on the upside. But on the downside, those flat to down months in the S&P 500, we might perform a little better because we brought some of that premium in from from the covered calls. Okay, so the other two ETFs in the suite are the uh, NEOS Enhanced Income Aggregate Bond ETF, ticker BNDI, and the NEOS Enhanced Income Cash Alternative ETF, ticker CSHI. Uh, Do you want to briefly highlight those? Sure. Uh, So for BNDI, um, we're long two of the biggest core bond ETFs as the underlying holdings, AGG and BND. And then we sell out-of-the-money SPX index put spreads that are rolled weekly. We do that to adjust for market moves. As we've seen, there's been a lot of volatility specifically this year. Um, so we could see the markets moving a lot intraday and, and intraweek. So we, we roll these weekly to stay moving with the market. Um, our goal here was to, to bring... Um, 200 to 250 basis points of, of income over what ag was currently giving you in your portfolio. And we're doing these, these are pretty far out of the money. And like we said, we're rolling weekly. So we're trying not to have too much equity exposure with those short put spreads, but we're trying to bring some in to be able to pay a little more income. And then what about, with, then, yeah, CSHI, go ahead. Sure. CSHI, we're long uh, 90 day treasuries. Um, and the same idea we're selling, um, out-of-the-money SPX index put spreads, but we're selling deeper out-of-the-money put spreads, taking a really conservative approach. Um, those are rolled weekly. The goal is to pro- provide 100 to 150 basis points over what you know, your 90-day T-bills are, are giving you. We distribute everything monthly. Um, and the goal was that we built this product. When we built this product, the treasuries weren't yielding anything. So we were looking how to how do you give somebody who's looking for a cash alternative um, 100 to 150 basis points. But now that T-bills are, are yielding you know, 4% or more, um, it's a really attractive product. It still has a, a low volatility, and uh, you get that little bump of uh, 100 to 150 basis points over what T-bills are giving, and we distribute that out monthly. Yeah, and similar to what we uh, discussed with SPYI, you know, I think clearly the income component, that's the star of the show here. But when I, when I look at products like this, I always like to think about potential downside. And so particularly with BNDI, I'm assuming an environment where uh, there, there are rising interest rates and equity markets declining, like we've seen this year, that's probably going to be the most challenging environment for a strategy like that. Is, is that correct? Yeah, you know, you have uh, the underlying core, you know, your core bond indexes from ag getting getting hurt and getting, uh, you know, trading lower. Um, and at the same time, you have the equity volatility we've seen, whether it was 
you know, September, the S&P is down 9%, then October, it's up 8%. So we're seeing all this volatility month to month within the S&P 500 in the equity markets. Um, so it is a little bit more difficult, but the idea behind um, what we're doing in the options is, is to try to be active in them, follow our rules-based models, and continue to roll on a weekly basis to stay with that movement in the S&P 500. Yeah, and Troy, just a couple minutes left here on the note of the uh, the markets. You know, you look right now, S&P 500 is down 16% year-to-date. Bloomberg Ag is down uh, over 13%. I'm just curious, what are you uh, telling clients and investors right now? Yeah, no, listen, it's been it's been an interesting year. We've, we, like you said, we have the S&P 500 down almost 16%. The NASDAQ 100 down, is down over 28%. We've had some extreme volatility on an intraday basis. Uh, the Fed is aggressively hiking rates to battle inflation, which everyone's feeling, whether it's at the gas pump, the grocery store, or maybe you're doing a home renovation project. And that's not even to mention any of the geopolitical tensions. So um, I, think we'll, I think we'll continue to see a lot of volatility um, that we've seen over the, over the past year as the Fed still fights inflation. But we look at it at NEOS, uh, with that increase in, in volatility comes opportunity in the options markets. Um, and that's why we're, we were you know, excited about bringing out our three ETFs that can enhance your core exposure, whether it's equities with SPYI, fixed income with BNDI, or in the cash space with CSHI. Well, congratulations on those uh, launches. I certainly wish you all the success. Again, in a category in options-based strategies that I think is going to continue to grow. I think this is going to uh, be a, a, a portion of the ETF space that's going to continue to get a lot of looks. So, uh, again, wish you all the success, and uh, thank you for joining me this week. Thank you, and happy Thanksgiving. That was Troy Cates, co-founder and managing partner of NEOS Investments. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Goldman Sachs Asset Management. If you would like to learn more about Goldman Sachs Asset Management's ETFs, you can visit gsam.com ETFs. Next week, I'll be joined by NASDAQ's Jing Bui. We're going to find out what's on her uh, ETF radar right now. Always love visiting with Jing. And then Harbor Capital's Christoph Gleitsch will spotlight their unique lineup of ETFs, which includes the Harbor All-Weather Inflation Focus ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.